Welcome to The Pharmacists Are In, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Dale Griffiths. Dale has been a community pharmacist in New Zealand for over 40 years. He has been actively involved in both pharmacy governance and education. He has been a panel and committee member at the University of Otago and helped with setting up the University of Auckland Pharmacy School in 2000. Dale was also the chair of the College of Pharmacists in New Zealand and the past president of the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. Join John and Dale as they talk about a wide range of topics, such as the expansion of pharmacy scope of practice in New Zealand, the political debate surrounding drug reform, and the shifting global medical landscape. Listen in as they also discuss INR point of care testing, which is a new practice area for both Canadian and New Zealand pharmacists. Tune into the successes and challenges of implementing INR clinics from two experts in the field. Pull up a seat and let's get started. We're here live from the 78th FIP, World Congress of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm here with uh, Dale Griffiths, and we've uh, really excited, Dale, to, to have you on the show and Thanks, be able John. to chat a little bit. Yeah. Um, we've been coming to this conference for a few years now. I, I, I had a chance to meet Dale back, uh, probably, be, it was probably before South Korea, I think. First time I met you was in Vienna. Vienna, yeah. So, this is one of the unique things about being involved in pharmacy practice globally. You get to meet interesting practice, practitioners, researchers, uh, educators from around the world. And Dale has done a lot. Uh, he's from uh, New Zealand. Dale, maybe start by telling me a little bit about what, what you've done in, in sure. your past. Um, I've been a community pharmacist for nigh on 40 years. Um, I did a small stint in hospital, but I've been involved in pharmacy governance and education. So I had uh, roles uh, at both universities on different panels for the University of Otago and helped with the setting up of the University of Auckland Pharmacy School in 2000. Uh, also, my time I've uh, been chair of the College of Pharmacists in New Zealand and I'm um, a past president of the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. How many pharmacies in New Zealand? Is There's about just short of a thousand community yes. pharmacies in New Zealand. So you represented a good chunk of pharmacists there as well. Well, all members of the society, all members, all pharmacists have to be members of the pharmaceutical society because it runs the only um, accredited CPD oversight program in New Zealand, uh, which means. There's a lot of resource gone into developing it and supporting members and pharmacists to do good CPD. It's always interesting here at FIP, you kind of get down here and you, you know, pharmacy, you kind of live in a bubble when you're in your own country. I mean, you practice within the jurisdiction of your country and then you get out here and you see how much variability there is, uh, especially in the kind of the countries that are really now starting to promote the profession. They, they're looking towards, you know, more advanced. Uh, uh, pharmacy practice and, and seeing what they could pick up from us, but we'll, I'm sure we'll meet a lot of them today, you know, today at the welcoming ceremonies and whatnot. But New Zealand is, I consider it one of the countries that's more advanced with respect to pharmacy practice. Yeah, thanks John. It, it, when you come here it does put it in perspective. I know um, at one of the other IPAC events that I went to in um, Oslo at EAHP, talking to pharmacists from Europe and we're talking about doing the, the warfarin management and just some of the things that we do as pharmacists and community with patients, they wouldn't ever have thought possible. So it kind of 
puts everything into perspective for yourself and you, go, you come away going, yeah, despite all the day-to-day -day angst that goes on around contracting, around grumpy patients, all those things that we all deal with every day, to come out on a world stage and go, this is what we do, and other people go, wow. And that, I went home really charged up about that. There were a couple of guys from Switzerland that were going to come visit me in New Zealand as a result of that. One, one Norwegian guy says, I've learned more talking with you over the bar than I learned in a whole three days at a conference. So um, that made me feel pretty good. Yeah, that's one of the good things about FIP. There's a lot of talking around the bar, I find. <laughs> but it's a good chance to, to network. But with respect to, uh, you know, uh, practice, do you guys have immunization now in New Zealand? Do you have some of these other things, minor ailment prescribing? I we don't have, we've looked at obviously quite tightly at the, or closely at the Scottish model and Harry McQuinlan, who was head of Pharmacy Scotland about 15 years ago, we brought him to New Zealand what would have been 2005, 13 years ago. We brought Harry McQuinlan to New Zealand specifically to look at what was happening in Scotland and the ability of both the government and the profession to work closely together to make sure that the government got what they wanted out of pharmacy and that the profession got something out of it too. And I think that lesson, certainly in New Zealand, hasn't been taken um, on as well as it possibly could have. We've just been through a contentious new contract round and the vision wasn't there, it became an argument and, and we all want to get to the same place but the clarity wasn't on both sides of the argument and I'm standing outside the argument so I, I, I'm not there first hand anymore. But that, that certainly seemed to come through that there was a disengagement about we all want, everybody wants to move forward but the how-to isn't there. Yeah, it seems that's a common theme, like it depends I guess where, where the country is with respect to practice but we've seen it as well in Canada, you know. We got pushback uh, with immunization, started with flu. Uh, we did a bang up job with flu, you know, uh, nationally, uh, uh, millions of flu shots now given across yeah. the country. Then we get enhanced immunization, a little bit of pushback there, but then that's adopted. And I, I imagine a little bit of that happens uh, everywhere. It's once you get that scope, I think then everyone says, hey, my pharmacist could do a good job here. And it helps. I think, yeah, you're right. We had the same thing with, with flu vaccination, and I don't do vaccination, and it's purely a, a matter of space in, in the pharmacy I, I run, or one of them, um, where it was only those people who weren't covered under the public system that, you know, community pharmacy provided a quick service. There was no appointment needed. You could come in, and, and as soon as a pharmacist was free, they could take you to a consult room and give you your vaccination, and away you went. Then with pressure in a certain geographic area, suddenly the funding came from the government and, and some of the restrictions around age came off. So people over 65 are all funded in New Zealand for flu vax. Children with um, certain illnesses are funded, so asthma, type 1 diabetes get funding. And so that's broken some of the barriers and I think we're still on that journey as to where pharmacy can go with that. We also have to be careful that we're not too restrictive. We want safe practice. But we're also really good, I think, as a profession because we're so used to a yes, no, it's right or it's wrong attitude from our dispensing practice that we can take that forward too much and actually inhibit our own abilities to move forward. Well, absolutely. I see that in, in the students as well. And I, I think you're very right. It comes from the dispensing side of the business where it's either right or wrong. And, and the clinical practice isn't always like that. So you've got to get used to being a practitioner as well where you use your clinical judgment. and. And there is some room for gray, but I think that's something that will develop uh, with time. But, you know, you are a, a business owner as well. Yeah. How is drug reform hit hard in New Zealand? I know in, in, in Ontario and in Canada, we've seen a lot of drug reform over the last few years, which is 
almost changed the dispensing business as well. Is that is that a reality for you guys? Ours has been a, it's been a reality yeah. for New Zealand since about 1996, where we have a obviously a socially or government-funded health system, and the government realised that it could start to use its clout as a buyer to reduce the price of pharmaceuticals. So I think at that point in time they were looking at projections of almost doubling the drug budget at current prices within 10 years and steps were taken to, to buy centrally, um, which was kind of happening but not aggressively. A lot of companies for generic medicines, the, each brand comes up or each uh, chemical comes up for a contract, so every two years they come up for contract for sole supply for the whole of the country for two years. On the whole, as a taxpayer, it's worked really well. It's taken nearly all the profit out of the out of the medicine out of pharmacy. It's around you get paid for the for the service, but there's still a stockholding component. It's kind of recognised not very well, and there's still arguments around that. But as a taxpayer, it's worked really well, and it's meant the same amount of money is bought a lot more for our country. It has been exposed to some political campaigns that might have been. Um, stimulated by the drug companies, whose septin was a, um, a big, it wasn't funded and then suddenly there became a breast cancer survivors awareness group that made a lot of noise about the value of her septin. The buying agency said the evidence isn't there, obviously that's changed now with who's too positive, obviously responds really well to her septin. So it's part of it's been time then, the then Prime Minister, or before he was Prime Minister, waved it as an election flag and it suddenly money was made available to fund it. Okay. But we've seen more and more of the biologics start to roll out. There's, there's currently a bit of politicisation around some of the new cancer agents. And again, the argument is they're not out there long enough to show us good long-term studies of how valuable they are the cancer groups are obviously agitating for easier and quicker funding for them. Well, that's the reality, I think. Well, most of the new drugs are biologics now and these the costs are enormous. So I think everyone, I guess it's a global thing now, trying to balance cost versus effectiveness versus savings and, and all that. But I know, I mean, I think it's a reality now of our profession as well, kind of struggling with all these things and at the same time trying to reinvent ourselves. I know, I know, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about your uh, uh, CPAMS program, and I think that's that's probably uh, you know uh, when I think about an innovative program that's really changed the way pharmacists practice. That's definitely uh, one of them. Tell tell the listeners a little bit about sure. that. Sure, it followed a, a trial one of my colleagues, uh, Ian McMichael, had done in his pharmacy where they were using. Uh, a blood glucose, sorry, an INR meter to check people's INRs and, and I'm not sure whether at that point they were actually adjusting doses or not but they were doing finger prick testing because it was quicker and easier and nicer for the patient than venipuncture. It led to a trial in 2010 with support of Roche because they provided the meters with the support of the um, health workforce fund. They were looking at new roles for health practitioners on the basis that there will be more patients per health practitioner and that the, the professions were not going to grow at the rate that the, the people were going to grow at, particularly the uh, baby boomers as we all enter our retirement phase and our end of life phase. So they were looking at being innovative around the use of the personnel that they had and pharmacists are seen as a, a young uh, profession whereas general practitioners in New Zealand are certainly seen as an ageing profession. 
there's a gap in the in the GPs coming through of the 40-year-olds. There weren't as, it wasn't as attractive, and there weren't as many coming through. And there's also much more corporatization of, of general practice in New Zealand as well. So, lots of factors fed into that. So we ran a trial, 15 pharmacies, and we were aiming for just over six, 690 patients. We got around 600 patients, and what we proved over a six-month trial was that we had TTRs of 78%, and that was pretty universal against all those pharmacies. There was a maximum of 50 patients per pharmacy. Not everybody quite got there, which is why we didn't do the 690 for the power we wanted. But what it did was it was a, an, enough of a stimulus for the, then the Minister of Health to go, I want this to happen, because the funding bodies had weren't prepared to pick it up after the six-month trial ran out. So the, the funding money was there. The minister said, I want it. And so it was sustained for a short time in the pharmacies that were on the trial. And, and with that impetus of the, the um, Minister of Health saying something, it got rolled out and expanded slightly. So there's now around 100 and just over 150 pharmacies providing the service, so not everybody does it. It is targeted geographically to a degree so that there's an even spread of the pharmacies providing it. And what we've been able to show is that we've been able to sustain really high TTRs. So I presented some data last year at FIP. Um, we're over two separate six-month periods. We were, had a time and range of 73.1 and 74 point something low uh, for over 7,000 patients. Wow, um, that's yeah. incredible. So you got the convenience, the accessibility, awesome results there. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a patient, that, I, you know, that's what you want. And I think that one of the areas of interest in, in my research and kind of what I do in practice is around point-of-care testing. Mm -hmm challenge we've had in Ontario is a little bit, uh, it's been around the jurisdiction and the, the legislation if you're able to do this type of stuff in pharmacies and it's almost a grey area but it's great to see that the, the health minister backed you up there. And we were lucky John in New Zealand that uh, we were able to get round legislative barriers of pharmacists adjusting doses by using a piece of legislation called a standing order. And it was designed for nurses to be able to adjust or give medicines, prescription medicines to patients in rest home environments where so if a patient had a UTI, it was proven on, on dipstick that the nurse had a protocol to follow, the doctor signed it off, and these are meant to be reviewed annually. So we used that in a way it probably wasn't perceived uh, for pharmacists to change the doses of warfarin. So as long as patients have an INR between 1.5 and 4.0, we can adjust the warfarin doses we see fit. If the patient's outside that range, obviously below 1.5, it might be initiation, they may have stopped it. Um, all sorts of stories get told around that. But above 4.0, we have to refer that to the GP. Most of the time, if we go to the GP and tell them, because we've learned through process that the patient doesn't have a history of bleeding with high INR and isn't ble currently bleeding, they will let us self-manage that according to the algorithm. And in reality, the haematologists say, don't worry until it's much over six. One of the interesting cases we had was a, a lady um, in her mid-60s quite uh, with it and had been through a course of cancer therapy so we've been quite careful around managing her INRs during that treatment and she uh, came in one day and it was just a vague comment when I did a test and her INR was up above, well above four and uh, she made a comment I'm still eating greens and the, it was just the way she spoke that made me think something's changed and so I said, what are you eating? And she said, oh, peas and beans. And she said, what were you eating? She said, oh, she said, spinach and kale. And she'd gone from products that have a thousand microgram plus per cooked cup mm -hmm. to 60 micrograms per cooked cup. So this huge multiple variation. fold variation. Yeah. And it just, 
and it pushed our INR up. So most of the time we're actually able to trace, I, I suspect around 70 to 80% of the time people go out of range. In the conversation we have with them around their management, we can find the source of that. But there's much less, that was far more of an, a factor in um, the volatility of people's INRs than were drug interactions. We have had one spectacular case of a drug interaction that shouldn't have happened. But beyond that, most of the variation is actually around food, alcohol, seasonal parties at Christmas and, and fatty foods. Uh, then yeah, that's what I found yeah. too. I, I, <clears throat> I used to manage the anticoagulation service uh, uh, in long-term care at Sunnybrook Hospital. Mm -hmm. That was one of my jobs when I practiced in hospital. Same thing, pharmacists there, we, we did all the um, INR dose adjustments uh, with warfarin. And that's what I found. Occasionally these patients would go home, right? They'd go on passes. We'd have them stable, stable. They'd go home. And that's when their INR would get wacky and they'd come back. And it's just their diet, drinking, doing other things. But rarely did we have challenges, uh, you know, when there wasn't these dramatic changes outside of when they got sick. I found when they got sick, that shot it up uh, uh, quite a bit as well. And we had yeah, to be People, people are sick, they don't eat for a couple of days. That's it, yeah. And, and yeah, their INR gets out of the way. So we're always giving, I think it's a case of re-education. We had them in a consult room for 10 minutes while they were um, talking to us about their INR and we were waiting for the meat to count down. And so it was an opportunity to refresh their knowledge about warfarin and what it was used for and also for the other medicines they were taking. One of the really spectacular um, outcomes, we had a video that's available on YouTube that we show to patients regularly and it's a graphic of um, around anticoagulation and, and somebody at the end of it go, was just said to me out of the blue, he said, that's the first time in the seven years I've been taking warfarin, I know why. Wow. So we assume an awful lot that despite all the telling that gets given to patients, sometimes they just don't get it and it's a huge amount of trust that's involved and these are people that have the red warfarin booklets and have education when they're put on warfarin and yet sometimes it just needs a different format to make that. You know what, you bring up a good point. I've noticed in Canada one of the challenges now, we've seen a lot of patients transition from uh, warfarin to the DOACs mm -hmm. and I know, I think you've just gotten a DOAC you were saying, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, these patients were used to being monitored so closely because of their INR, they flip over to the DOAC and we've had examples now, the adherence drops off because no one's watching them. Mm. Uh, cases of, you know, strokes uh, in the ER just because patients stop taking their medication. I had a senior call in one time and he's like, you know what, I'm not being monitored, I'm, I'm afraid of my potentially bleeding, yeah. I'm going to half my dose. I'm like, you can't half your dose, you know, but you, you see this and I think, you're very right. Sometimes we assume the patients know more than they actually do. Were the physicians receptive to this? You seem like you guys have a pretty good collaboration. We did, and, and I, I suppose it was led by a couple of guys, the senior partners in the practice who I have good relationships with. And there was, you know, when they agreed, all the other doctors came in line. And, and since then, obviously, other colleagues have sometimes found it difficult to deal with the doctors. Others, obviously the doctors have heard of the service and, and, and are more willing to accept it. It's been, it was difficult when I was asked to speak at a GP conference uh, yeah. around this because I couldn't get one of the GPs I work with to speak to me and stand alongside me on stage, despite the fact he said, you're really welcome to the work because you do it such a better job. And I think um, that was a bit telling that they, they don't like someone standing up in front of um, maybe flying an unwelcome flag. But to come back to the adherence issue, um, what we found is that well over 90% of our patients present within one to three days of due date, 
and most of our patients, the average test frequency in New Zealand is about 1.6 tests per month per patient, awesome. uh, which is really good. So we're, we're maximum normal dosing frequency is 28 days. We're not meant to go beyond that, but obviously sometimes with holidays we do that. We had a patient that went to the States who thought it was all good because his daughter's doctor would look after him in the States. What he, when he got there, he found that to be able to be managed by his his daughter's doctor, he had to have a full workup, despite having letters from cardiologists and all and his GP here in New, Ze in New Zealand, what the conditions were. But for basically insurance purposes, the doctor in the US had to do the full range of tests again. So what he does now is he goes to the states, he takes an INR meter with him, and he just emails back results, and we wow. have a chat. Yeah, and I love that you guys have you have the data, and I know you've presented on this in the past, but more pharmacists, we got to start doing this as a profession. And I, I know it's starting to prop up in the point of care world. We've got like, we've had, I think, INR, warfarin data for a while. We're seeing it now with strap, uh, you know, lipid screening, uh, uh, flu testing, uh, pharmacogenomics. Like, I mean, this great push for evidence in the pharmacy world. It used to be done in, in small pockets, I found by researchers, but we're seeing more and more community pharmacists, you know, get behind it. And that's really, I think we really need that to kind of, keep, you know, that envelope, we got to just keep pushing and pushing. We've got to prove our worth and, and, you know, we all assume sometimes that we do a good job, but it, when it's written in a paper that you've done a good job, sure. uh, we did some, you know, some other things that have come out of IPAC was the AF screening we're doing yeah. and, and the first time we did, the very first patient we did, the first time we did the AF screening, this gentleman who I'd known for the best part of 20 years came in and one of my pharmacists came out and said, can, can you just check this pulse because it doesn't feel right? Yeah. And uh, so I went in and I said, well, I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't feel right. And I have obviously felt over time people with, with AF and felt their pulse. And it didn't feel that thready, gallopy type yeah. pulse, but it just felt weird. But an hour later, one of the GPs came down from the practice upstairs and said, well done. He had uh, asymptomatic, undiagnosed AF. So wow. From a manual pulse, Jack, that's, that's yeah, amazing. So and yeah. you mentioned IPAC, and I think uh, some of the listeners may not know what that is. So that's how we actually met. It's, uh, it's a group of uh, pharmacists, academics, researchers uh, that have been brought together from all over the world, really with a focus on anticoagulation um, and uh, kind of expanding the pharmacist role. And we've got a, I think we'll be talking to some other members uh, throughout the course of FIP here, but that's been a unique experience because rarely do you see a group of pharmacists from all over the world come together for one therapeutic area. Yeah, and it's been, I mean, personally, it's been really rewarding and, and you know, I've got my name on a couple of papers that I helped contribute to, which is kind of cool, but something I never thought would happen. But I think also it's the sharing um, aspect of it, the fact that, you know, New Zealand's a long way from anywhere. And, you know, it's a 20-odd hour flight to get here, and, but it's important to be here. It's important to, to say that what we do, um, not only what, I, what we do in New Zealand as a collective, but what we've contributed around the world. And, you know, we're finding that 1.4% of those people that we are testing uh, pulses on have got AFib and they're not diagnosed. So collectively, through the work of us as IPAC encouraging other colleagues to get involved, we've made a difference. Yeah, an absolute difference. And you know, if IPAC exists, if it doesn't exist, the relationships we've built and the network that we've created here, that'll be uh, long lasting. I mean, the ability for our students to connect now, I know we're we're all collaborating on a pharmacogenomics paper. Uh, we're going to launch that 
project in a few months. Just we've we've now taken a, you know an entirely different direction even. So I think a, a really unique experience. Uh, I, I don't think many pharmacists have that opportunity, but we've almost built a global network. And we're able to access it for really whatever we want. And it could be our own personal projects or whatnot. And then having also access to the expertise on this committee, because it's not all community pharmacists, it's a mix of everything. So I think we all draw on each other. But uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful experience for me. I mean, uh, having the opportunity to meet people like you, Sotiris, really helped mentoring me through my own career has been, been a great experience. Philippa, and she's really taken charge of our the research aspect. It's, uh, it's it's really been a great time, and we joke about the air miles. But me and you come probably from the furthest distance. I think we've got yeah, some people I, from I China. Yeah, I win. I win. Yeah, you win. For I sure. win every time. You get the good flights too. But uh, no, I think overall it's uh, uh, you know really great experience, and I think hopefully we get an opportunity in the future to showcase more of our great work. Uh, you know, thanks for taking the time to come in today and just uh, chatting with us. I know it's just the beginning of FIPS, so I know me and you will do the rounds probably tonight and over the next few days. But uh, thanks again, Dale, for coming in. You're welcome. This podcast was brought to you by IPACT, the International Pharmacist for Anticoagulation Task Force. Visit www.ipact.org for more information.